Hello, I'm Brian Stewart. And I'm Joseph Camo. You sound very unsure of that. I think I'm Joseph Camo. <laughs> I forgot to introduce the show I'm on, which is the Ghost yeah. Story Guys podcast. That, yeah. So that, that may have something to do with that. Anyways, this is Weird Together, where we talk about the latest and greatest in horror films, because we're weird and you're weird. So why not be weird together? Yes, and Weird Together is part of the Ghost Story Guys family of podcasts, which includes the fantastic, fantastic podcasts of Mysteries and Monsters, Luke Lore, and Book of the Dead. See, I never know if he's going to do it now. I can never See, tell. Keep you on your heels, man. Keep you on yep. your heels. You never know with J-Bone. He's, uh, he's a wild man. <laughs> That's what they say about me, yes. That's right. A wild man who I have not seen in a while, so it's really good to be on the stream with you, my friend. Yeah, man, I miss hanging out with you. You know, it's been a little bit of time, and I know you've got the big move over there, you know, and a lot of stuff going on. And here in I've Cell Block D. Yeah, Cell Block D. So, uh, but yeah, it's been too long, but it, it's definitely good to hang out with you, man. Absolutely. No, I and I, yes, I am here in, in uh, well, I would say sunny, but no, I, I am here in prisony Montreal. I'm uh, here in my, my cell on the 28th floor, and uh, I am living the dream. And uh, I'm really looking forward to talking about this movie tonight. Uh, of course, we are talking about the uh, Senegalese mm. horror film Saloon. Of course, last time we had we had said we were going to do the movie Glorious, uh, which was a, another Shutter original. And, and Glorious is a really good movie. I, 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 I quite enjoyed it. Did you have a chance to watch that before we switched it up? Not yet. Okay. So it, it's fun. It's, it's probably still a little long at 79 minutes. You know, the, the, the premise is stretched a little thin, but uh, it's still it's still a pretty solid movie. But then Saloon came out, and we're going to talk about it. Uh, but I, it just seemed like a much more uh, conversationally rich film. So before we get there, though, of course, we've got to show you the trailer. Saloon is a 2022 film which defies easy categorization, but we'll call it a horror Western action drama. Directed by Jean-Luc Herbulot, who also made the excellent Senegalese supernatural detective series Sako et Mangan, Saloon is the film you show your annoying friend who likes to complain, no one makes good movies anymore. You know the one. The perennial underachiever who lives online and feels entitled to comment on the state of cinema, despite their entire media diet consisting of pirated episodes of Bob's Burgers and whatever Marvel's doing at the moment. That is very specific. And yet it applies to so many people. Saloon tells the story of Bengis Hyenas, a trio of mercenaries who, as the film opens, are extracting a drug lord and his gold from the wreckage of a coup d'etat in 2003 in Guinea-Bissau. Our heroes escape in the kind of small plane all remaining Kennedys cross the street to avoid. A leaky fuel tank forces the mercenaries, Chaka, Rafa, and Minwit, along with their passenger Felix, to land in Senegal's Saloon Delta, near a remote camp run by the enigmatic Omar. The rules of Omar's camp are simple. You don't have to pay up front, but instead you can work for accommodation. And while Rafa isn't happy with this arrangement, I have paid a lot of money for Airbnbs, which expect more from you than this place, and none of those tasks were as fun as shooting poachers with a pellet gun. Right now, you might be saying to yourself, Bren, none of this sounds like a horror movie. And to that I say, you fool, you rube, I said this was a horror western action drama. And what I have described is, at most, the first 20 minutes. Did I mention ear protection that keeps demons away? The insect monster people things who look like they come from Constantine but are a thousand times cooler because this movie was made for a fraction of what it cost to make that one. Chaka's secret history with Omar. Or even the fact that this movie has something like four different languages in it, including sign language. No, I didn't. And that's because unlike Airbnb chores, the magic in this film comes from discovering it as you go. And if you want to know more, you'll have to watch Saloon to find out. 
All right. So that is Saloom. And I guess we'll just, we'll get to it. But of course, before you can talk about a movie, you got to talk about all the things you go into the theater with, because you never just watch a movie, right? You, you take every movie you've ever seen into the theater with you. And that's why we always have to unpack our baggage. All right, Joseph, you yes. first. What is what is what was your baggage going into uh, Saloon? So I had no familiarity with the film, and I am not a connoisseur of Senegalese film or media, so I, I really had no background. The only thing I knew about it was that you loved this film. Like you, you mm. sent me a message like, this is a really good film. So clearly I had a low bar set, right? <laughs> I did not expect much because of your taste in films. Uh, so uh, Dirty I, pool. Low yeah, blow. <laughs> listen, so I went into it, you know, maybe not expecting a ton, uh, but obviously it exceeded those expectations exponentially. Fair enough. So I, I know a little bit, okay. I know nothing about Senegalese cinema. Um, I watched this because it started popping up on Twitter. A lot of people were talking about it. Uh, and now th there's a podcast I quite enjoy, Action for Everyone. I think I've mentioned it on here before. And the host of that, one of the hosts of that, Mike Scott, who I, I was on one of his previous shows, he was talking about it. He was a huge fan. And usually my tastes sync up pretty well with Mike's. So when he was talking up this movie, I thought, okay, well, shit, I, I got to see it. So there, I had that. And um, at the time... I hadn't, I couldn't get it. I, Shutter was not working uh, in my cell. I've got a, a smart TV. Shutter was not working. So I discovered that the director had done a uh, series also set in Senegal in Dakar called uh, Sakawe Mangan, as I, as I posted. So I watched a little of that. I've, I'm three episodes in. I love it. It's very slick, which I was not expecting because my experience with African cinema, and of course, Africa is a huge fucking continent. So one thing is not going to be representative of a huge fucking continent. But uh, I, I'm familiar with uh, Out of Nollywood, which is Nigeria, the Vultures of Horror series, which is very bad, mm. and the much more entertaining, but still nothing compared to Saloom, uh, the the films of Nabwana IgG out of Wakaliwood, which is Uganda, uh, films like um, Who Killed Captain Alex and Bad Black. Now, I have a clip here from Bad Black, uh, so this will give you an indication of, of what I'm talking about. She does what she must to survive. What a movie! That is a ride. If you are at all interested in seeing those folks, they're both uh, both Who Killed Captain Alex and Bad Black are streaming on the Arrow Player. For five bucks a month, you can't beat it. Arrow player, sponsor us. They're a, they're a ride. Real quick, though, let's say hey, real quick. We got Derek in the chat. Thanks for hanging out with us. Hey, Derek. Uh, we've got Eva. Thank you for hanging out. Excited to see you too. Thanks for being here. Hey, Eva. And we've got Chris joining us on Facebook as well. So thanks for for hanging out with us. Hey, Chris. Uh, so anyway, yeah. So I see what you're saying. There is there there is a different level of art form in uh, Saloon versus what you just showed us. Yes. I, I'd like to point out the films of Nabwana IGG, like the ones I've just showed you, the budget for who killed captain Alex was reportedly $85. Okay. And, and from what I understand, at least according to the liner notes or whatever, the, the press notes for who killed captain Alex, which I should point out is about six to eight years old. So mm. things may have progressed. I, I'm not that up on it, but it's a kind of setup where 
it's so indie. He has to delete the previous film to make room on his hard drive for the new Ooh, one. Okay. You know, so yeah, I was not prepared for what Saloom had to offer. And we will talk about that. Really in the only place men such as us have left to do such things. The talk to gone. Welcome to the talk to gone. Two men enter. Two men leave. Now, as we've established recently in the talk to gone, mostly it's going to be your points and me reacting to them. But I, I do have one or two things, but I, I want to, I would like, I would love for you to start. Okay. Well, I'm going to start with just sort of an o- overarching theme. And what I really, one of the things I really liked is the film seemed to be sort of almost like an allegory about revenge and the endless cycle of revenge. Right. You know, and you see the opening has the poem, right. That with the closing line, revenge is a river whose bottom is reached only when we drown. And it closed with that. So it clearly bookended that to sort of kind of have that as the clear kind of, uh, thread through the whole thing and and you look at it you see there's uh, points where they revisit that cycle revenge right you know chaka uh they they juxtapose the shots of him pointing the gun at omar with when he was a child and then there's all these scenes and then you know the way it ends with him being pulled into the river and so much of it just seems like this allegory of that endless cycle of revenge where until either someone dies or there's some sort of forgiveness or reconciliation, revenge gets goes back and forth and just escalates, right? That cycle of revenge. And, and I just I feel like that was a, a very much the intentional theme of this film based on that poem and just all the imagery and the way that they wove it through the film. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, again, for those of you, if you're new to the show, we're going to spoil the shit out of this movie. So just yeah. FYI, we find out that, that Chaka was a child soldier under, who was... Um, abused by Omar. And so that is why he has returned to this camp. You know, he is the one who put the hole in the plane's fuel tank because he wanted to go there and, and take his revenge. And the idea that everything, no matter what you accomplish, because really Chaka, Chaka's group, the, the, the hyenas, they really have reached kind of a mythical place. Like when when Rafa is on the boat with Awa, who is a character we meet, she is, um, I guess, a deaf mute. She speaks sign language. And I know Herb Bielow has said in interviews that he wanted the hyenas to know sign language because he thought that would be something that soldiers would need on a battlefield. Mm. That would make a logical sense. Like you can't speak, so you have to be able to speak. Mm. Uh, so, she, you know, Rafa is out with, with her on the boat and she says to them, stories about heroes travel faster than bullets. You know, she speaks about the hyenas and these kind of almost as like these mythical beings. And as, you know, there's a couple of really beautiful establishing shots that I think really drive that home. And so I, I think the idea being that you know, no matter who you are, even if you're this mythical hero, you, you know, you are not safe from rage. You know, you are not safe from pain. And if you don't process your pain, then you're going to go down with the ship. You're going to end up in the, the bottom of the river. And uh, it, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a powerful message. And I, I, I haven't, didn't really have a chance to dive into sort of exactly what Herbula was trying to put across. But I, I think, yeah, I, I think the pointlessness of cycles of violence is, is a big part of that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Derek has a comment here and it's, he's making a reference that admittedly I'm not familiar with. You might have uh, some thoughts on this. The first half of this movie reminds, reminded me of something Canon films would put out in the 1980s. <laughs> I kept half waiting for Michael Dudikoff to show up. Yes. Michael Dudikoff. Oh, Derek, you're a man after my own heart. <laughs> Michael Dudikoff of American Ninja fame. Who famously, if I remember correctly, I think I heard this on on a podcast, 
Michael Dudikoff, yeah, he starred in, in the American Ninja films, and there's five of them. Uh, he did not like doing action. He did not want to be seen as a, as a martial arts guy. And so it's, uh, it's kind of funny that, you know, that's who he be, ended up becoming. Yeah, Canada Films, funny enough, Derek, um, Herbie Lowe has said in interviews that he grew up watching uh, Korean and Hong Kong cinema. He saw Aliens when he was seven. And so, yeah, like, I guarantee you that when he was growing up, because he's Congolese, but I think he was raised, I want to say he was raised in Europe, but I don't know if that's true. But uh, I, I think he grew up watching those movies you're talking about. And uh, it wouldn't surprise me if that was that was part of the influence. Although something he, he's also said in interviews, and I really admire this, uh, when he was sort of concepting the film, he told his producing partner, I think it was Pamela Diop, he told her that he does not want any overt homages hmm. in the visual language. You know, and, and, and I think that's really cool. So I think it carries those that feel, but it, he's not trying to replicate a look or a, hmm. a particular shot. Because I, I will say, and this is just Uncle Bren on his soapbox here, I feel like that's something horror movies do too much of now. Mm. I feel like, you know, everyone, we know you all grew up watching John Carpenter movies. I like them too, but sweet motherfuck. You know, if I have to see one more person visually referencing the thing or visually referencing the fog or Christine, I'm just going to throw the television out the window. And it's going to take work, Joseph. It's a small window. Yeah. So don't, don't, don't make me do this, guys. I think that segues into some of my other points really well, because while there weren't those visual nods there were in my opinion a couple homages or nods thematically or or in terms of character that might be a little less obvious but that at least i saw now whether they were intentional or not is yet to be determined or to be i guess the the director would have to say but like for example omar's character and the camp and everything about that right there's something about that that reminded me of kurtz in heart of dark oh interesting right? Joseph Conrad's novella, uh, which was made into a film with Marlon Brando as Colonel Kurtz, right? And there's just something about, you know, the person deep into, you know, a place that's away from the center of civilization, right? That, and who has this camp with people that are following him, and then there's something about it that's not right. Right. Um, and even, you know, maybe, I don't know if the bald head and the look was intentional or not, uh, maybe not, but there was something about Omar that felt very much like Kurtz from the novella and from the film Apocalypse Now. I mean, that's a great point. Uh, there was also, if I remember correctly, there was a TV movie made of Heart of Darkness. And I'm just going to have a quick look because I seem to recall I was watching it and expecting great things. And it was, it was uh, disappointing. It was, yeah, it wasn't great. <laughs> um, yes, I thought so. Yeah. So it was t- uh, John Malkovich played mm-hmm. Kurtz and Tim Roth played. Um, uh, Marlowe. Mm, but uh, anyways, um, no, I do think it's very possible. I, I know the film began, like the, the kernel of the idea of the film began when his producing partner, Pamela Diop, took her below to the Salome because she's from that region. Mm. So she wanted to show him uh, her, her this place. And so I guess once he got there, he said the region just had this magic all its own. And he said, I really like, I'm going to, I have to shoot a movie here. And they had the camp right? Like the camp was an existing place. And so he started writing a film that was originally, as I recall, it was originally uh, centered around these people in a camp where something was attacking it. Mm. But then he started to to build it out. And I wouldn't be surprised if there was some element of that in there. Certainly, yeah, again, I hadn't made the connection, but I, I can see it. I mean, obviously there are differences, but it's hard to ignore that. 
Yeah. Well, there, there's another nod that might not be as intentional or certainly not as, uh, of, uh, shall we say, of as much of a literary significance or relevance. But uh, there was a part er, fairly early in the film where uh, Chaka got the B.A. Baracus treatment. <laughs> <laughs> right he because he didn't he had I was a, so happy when you asked me to get that <laughs> we didn't get on no damn airplane or boat right <laughs> you know so like i i don't know if that was intentional or not but certainly as as a child who grew up born in the 70s grew up in the 80s watched my fair share of a team and all the uh the the various ploys to get ba baracus on a plane when i saw the <laughs> knockout powder and that they put him on the boat that's immediately i'm I, in my notes oh he's getting the ba baracus treatment isn't he so that was i don't also, know if that was an homage uh but i enjoyed the hell out of that i mean i i know the reason they did that was because of his experience when he was a boy he has this right. terrifying fear of water and there was even a little bit of if you want to think about it this way there's a little bit of the wild bunch in there have you ever seen the wild bunch mm-hmm so the Wild Bunch is this classic Sam Peck and Paul Western. It was it was released the same year, I think, as True Grit, the first one. But it was so savagely violent, it was kind of considered to end to like the herald the end of the traditional Western era. Mm. And it, it sort of deals with this group of outlaws who are really getting too old to live this life. You know, they live in a world where there are now cars, and you know, like early cars, mm. but still cars. And yeah. the leader, uh, who's played by, um, oh Jesus. I want to say Robert Ryan, but I can't, I don't know if that's no Warren Oates. It doesn't matter. Cannot remember who plays the leader. Jesus is terrible, but um, he gets, goes to get on his horse and he, he can't, he, he can't like his, his, he's old. His hip is fucked up. He has a hard time getting on his horse. And one of his men says to him, you know, well, maybe if you can't get on the horse, maybe you don't deserve to lead anymore. Mm-hmm. And with Chaka, you know, after everything that's happened, they land in Saloom and he, he can't get on the boat. And it's sort of suggested that, well, maybe, you know, this, he can't even get on a fucking boat. Maybe, maybe he's past it. Mm-hmm. You know, you got this idea of, of being past your prime. And I know, um, again, in, in interviews, Herbulo has said that he intended this to be uh, sort of the, the, like the final act in the, in the story of the hyenas. Right. Okay. You, you know, he intended this to be like, these guys have had these incredible journeys. Again, they've become these mythical heroes because, because when they meet Awa, she blackmails him. She wants out. She's she's also on the run. She wants to leave the camp, but she she blackmails him with saying like I know who you are, but also she has this very deep respect for them because she's heard stories. So, and I thought that was interesting because like she she doesn't seem to like them personally, but there's an awe and respect of who they are, even yeah. though she's like she she seems like she's kind of pissed at them and angry at them and, and has some negative attitudes yet at the same time, there's this awe of who they are. Well, I think part of that comes from the fact that there's a moment between her and Chaka when after Omar is shot and you like the, the paranormal half of the film opens up sort of the, uh, you know, the Canon film ends as Derek says, and we kind of get into the horror stuff. They're running from the, the pestilence monster things. And she says something to Chaka about, Oh, this is you're gonna do us just like you did those people in in mm-hmm. Guinea in Guinea Bissau, and he tells her like, no, we don't we don't kill civilians. Mm-hmm. Those people were already dead. So she had these weird uh, she she had incorrect information, which of course mm-hmm. that happens with a legend, right? You start it, right. it just starts sucking up all these different bits. So she thought they had murdered innocent people, mm-hmm. and then once she finds out that no, that's not what they did, that's not what they do. Um, there's a real moment. I don't have a cap for it, unfortunately, but. There's a moment where she gives Chaka a very, like, very, like, oh, okay, this that's different. 
a reappraising look, I guess you'd say. So the next kind of point that I wanted to mention is that one of the things I really loved about the film and found absolutely refreshing was to see a horror film rooted in kind of the local and regional folklore. I don't know how accurate it is because I'm not, you have no background in Senegalese lore, but sure. it felt, it felt authentic, you know, as, yeah. as to the bill, my, my ability to tell. But what I loved is it, so much of the horror that we're used to watching is rooted in sort of kind of these Western tropes, right? You know, the, the vampires and, and, you know, werewolves and zombies and yeah. demons and ghosts and all Judeo Christian sorts of, you know, kind of mythologies and lores. And it was just really refreshing to see something that was completely different right from a completely different point of reference in you know that that was fresh and new to my cultural eyes that was very much intentional from what i've read there was that there was sort of this intentional push to create something that was very regionally specific you know because herbulo sort of feels he said in interviews that he feels like african cinema is not where it should be mm. which i mean based on what i showed you earlier you know he's not wrong but he wanted to create a film that, that sort of worked at the same level as what we would see, you know, like quote unquote Hollywood productions, but with the Senegalese influence. And so that, that was definitely intentional. And certainly um, Sako Imangan, that's a big part of it. Like it's, it's very much a detective series. Mangan is played by actually by Jan Gael, who plays Chaka. And he, funny enough, he has kind of a Mohawk in that very B.A. Baracus. Mm. But um, the first episode deals with a murder that takes place on the sacred island off the coast of Dakar, an island venerated by the fishermen, the people who, by the people who fish, and only the priestess and certain other people are allowed to be there. And when the body of a, West, of a white woman washes up or is found on the island, it's a major sacrilege. Mm. But not only that, not only has it been defiled by this body, but uh, their sacred carving of a sunfish that I think it's called the chat has been stolen. And without that, the fishermen don't feel safe going out to sea. Mm. So the first two episodes, Sako and Mangan have to try and find A, who, who killed this woman, but also they have to try and find the chat before it's sold by artifact thieves because the people won't fish. And if the people won't fish, there's no food. So it's very, very really regionally specific, but it completely changes the dynamic of, of the show. I mean, it, it has cop cliches, you know, you're off the case, you know, it's got that kind of shit just with a completely unique flavor. Like the, the episode yeah. I just watched yesterday, Mangan is forced to go undercover as a man whore because in those places, and I remember seeing this in Morocco, there are, there are you know, young men who their thing is like they pick up older white women from developed countries who have money and they sleep with them and they kind of are their companions for a few days. And, you know, in the film or sorry, in the series, they're described as toy boys. And again, that's not something we think about over here when we, because th we think, you know, you think sex tourism, of course, most people think dudes going over to places like Thailand, which, you know, certainly happens, but there's also this other version of it, which again, is just not covered very often. And I, I was really interested when Sakwin again portrayed that. Well, I think, and I think that's a great point too, uh, in terms of the importance of, of having art forms that are staying authentic to the culture and you know the, the the dynamics of where they're being filmed and produced, because you know it, it kind of gets to this cultural imperialism and cultural colonialism, where like developing countries sometimes feel this pressure to to conform to maybe 
the art form types and tropes of other, you know, wealthy, whatever countries. Sure. Instead of kind of maybe, you know, doing something more authentic. And it's nice to see such a talented filmmaker, clearly, and actors and writers doing something with really high quality production and, and writing and everything, but staying true to, you know, what is authentic to their own culture, right, in the area. So that's that's something yeah. really nice to see. Real quick, want to say hey to some of the folks. Uh, Kevin McKenna uh, saying love in the show. Good to see you guys. Thank you for the, the kind words. Thank uh, you, Kevin. Facebook. And then Rin uh, has a couple comments. Cowboys in early cars make me think of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, where Butch bemoans the updated bank security. He says the old bank was beautiful. The guard says it keeps getting robbed. Butch says small prices pay for beauty. Right. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. So I want to build on one of the things I kind of the local lore and. This I want to take kind of this and get a little this I mean get a little anthropological here and sociological kind of in a sense. So there's something really anthropologically interesting about the demon taking the form of a pestilence. Okay, and right. and, and you know when you look at this place, right? Uh, that there that it is set the space and the place that it's set in, right? It's a place that's presented as being sort of in the margins of industrialization, right? It's, 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 it's a region that's not near the population centers. You see cars, but you also see horses. You see what you often find in kind of these spaces that are kind of in the margins of industrialization. So like th those kinds of spaces has maybe are a little, they're not as far removed from their agrarian roots as post-industrial societies are. So when you look at like contemporary Western horrors, right, in places like the U.S. and Canada, for example, the forms of evil that, that they take are things that are kind of threats to uh, threats that resonate with us culturally in terms of where we are. So what I mean is like the th they're threats to being dismembered, maimed, murdered, threats to our soul, the kinds of things, the loss and fears that post-industrial societies a person living in a post-industrial society is more likely to fear violence and threats to our agency, ego, or freedom, right? Okay. But then if you juxtapose that against like a society, a space like this that is not as far removed from its agrarian and subsistence farming roots, the thing you fear in traditional societies and agrarian societies more than anything is a pestilence. That's a threat to famine and everyone starving. Right. Right. Like a pestilence demon is not going to resonate with you and I because we just are just so used to, well, food comes from the grocery store. Sure. And we are, we are multiple generations away from any sort of subsistence life. Right. Right. But the folklore in this region, in this region that is, again, not as far removed from those agrarian roots culturally and, and in terms of the lore and the stories. And many people still, in these kinds of regions still live at subsistence farming, right? So there's something anthropologically interesting about the demon taking the form of a pestilence that might be more relevant culturally, right? where to us, it just feels, it doesn't hit the same way, right? So I that was kind of just something that I thought was really interesting about the fact that when you look at it, it you know that demon takes the form of a pestilence. It looks like a swarm of locusts, right? right. And then it takes a human form. So to me, that was something uh, that's getting a little deeper, I guess, kind of in that sociological, anthropological kind of side of things. But that was something, a theme that I thought was really interesting here. I'll be honest, that had completely escaped me. 
again, when I saw the the pestilence demon, my mind went to Constantine. Mm-hmm. So because obviously that's sort of my visual reference, uh, which is you know a great movie. But um, yeah, the, that but that makes that makes total sense. I mean, I don't know much about the region. I'll be totally honest. Mm-hmm. You know, the Saloon Delta. I know based on what I read in interviews with the filmmakers, it is a remote place. You know, there, there's not much out there. So I don't know if they are, you know, if, it's, if subsistence is still what's happening, but no, that, that makes, that makes total sense. I know that uh, Herbie Lowe said, one thing he said about the region, he said, uh, you know, earlier I said, he said it had a kind of magic, but he also said that, um, and I guess this, this probably tells us what we need to know. He's like, he said, there are some places in Saloon where you don't want to bathe or where you don't want to go at night. He said it, it's as uh, beautiful as it is scary mm-hmm. or as scary as it is beautiful. Uh, it, it's also apparently in, infested with hyenas, which literal hyenas, not just li- yeah. He, he didn't know that when he was writing the script. He wrote, you know, the the hyenas, the characters, and then when he was shooting, he found out it was in fact also infested with real hyenas. But he he, he says he was never actually able to catch one on camera, so there's no shot of a hyena in the film. He tried, but they were they just eluded him. Yeah, and you know, and to that point, a region doesn't have to still be subsistence, although there probably is some subsistence. It's there are fewer generations removed from that, so the lore right, is still course. there, right? If that makes sense. Yep. Um, so but yeah, anyway, yeah, to me that that was just again kind of a, just a fascinating thing that that kind of occurred to me is like because a pestilence demon to us just is like, oh, that's weird and different. It sounds it's very old testament-y, right? That's our that's our frame of reference, old testament plague, right? Sure. But it's probably a much more immediate real sort of lore with rooted in fear of famine, right? In some place that, that's more close to the green roots. So tell you, man, shit keeps going the way it's going. There's gonna be a lot more people <laughs> afraid of pestilence and famine. Right, right. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh Ava's got a comment. Uh my friend's dad was a founder of the Jeepers Creepers Theater of Horror Movies. Uh J.R. uh Sullivan tagged him, wish I knew more history to give you. Oh cool. Yeah. I'm I'm not familiar with that, but but thank you. Yeah. So well, though that's what I had in the Toctagon. So you got any more, uh, any more, you know, uh, holds or moves or, or fisticuffs <laughs> or anything you're gonna throw at me? Just a couple little things. Like again, I really, I there's a I mentioned action for everyone earlier, and there's a phrase that they use on there, which is a director hooking their actors up, which is which means making them look good, making them look like fucking badasses. And I gotta say, I mean, they did that here because. Everyone looks great, despite the fact they're in a you know, relatively rustic setting. Everyone, like, they always look good. They're shot mm-hmm. very well. They're lit very well. Like there's a scene, I don't have a cap of it, but where Chaka is asleep on the boat and the, the river is passing beneath him. And it just, he just looks great. Mm-hmm. I, there's no other way I can describe it. Like they frame him beautifully. They light him beautifully. I mean, Jan Gale is a good looking dude anyways, mm-hmm. but the, everyone, in this looks good. Like Mentor Ba as Minwit, uh, Roger Salah as Rafa. Um, I can't remember the name of the actress playing Awa and uh, Bruno Henry as Omar. Like everyone just, they look fantastic, which again, you know, it, it ordinarily is not something, I mean, Christ, I, I've seen films that I assume had 10 or 15 times the budget that do not go to the lengths to hook up their actors. So I, I admired that. And I just, there is something about the film that makes me love it. Like I, I liked it. I, I watched it the once. And as I was saying to you off air, usually I watch these movies a couple times, but I, I just didn't have time this time around. But when I was getting the screen caps for your, for your slides, I just found myself just kind of sinking into the moment. 
Mm. You know, especially the first half. I mean, I like the second half with the action, but the character beats in the first half, I really enjoyed. And actually, once there's a moment which I forgot to put in my notes, but now that I remember it, there is a moment where when it finally comes out after Chaka has killed Omar, and it's it's come out what Omar did to him. There's this quiet moment between him and Minwit and Salah, where or uh, Rafa, where he just says, "I'm sorry for what he, I'm sorry for what he did to you," and they just mm. put their heads together, mm-hmm. and it's a really beautiful moment because again, you know, it's a kind of a brawny action movie, you know, like a canon style action movie, like like Derek said, and those movies were not great at dealing mm-hmm. with, with these kind of subjects, you know, like tenderness was not well handled in those movies. But that's a if there's no they don't waste a lot of time talking about it, but they they address it. And there's this really beautiful show of mm. vulnerability. Well, it's interesting because I think there's a point you see them do that when they're getting ready to do something at, at another point in the film. And there's something about it that when you see that you feel that this is a genuine connection, it's that that kind of posture of just that the heads together sort of huddle, hug, whatever you want to call it. It just feels like that's something they've done hundreds of times. Yeah before they go into any mission, yep. whatever they're doing, when there's an important moment, it felt poignant. It felt authentic. It felt real. And it felt like a really great way to share that moment you're talking about with a shorthand that felt real without having to have a large monologue, right? It, it, the note hit perfectly. And as you were describing the way people were filmed, I mean, I, in terms of the cinematography and, and the little things, I, I would describe what this film did as flawless. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that, I agree. It, it, and when you messaged me about this, when you said it was the best film we've covered in terms of the production. And I, I agree, right. It's, it's, Oh yeah. The writing is great. The storytelling is great. The visuals are great. The camera work is great. The light, everything is done superbly probably on a much smaller budget than films, you know, we're used to seeing, you know, like this one. Right. Uh, you know, so I'm uh, <laughs> sorry, I couldn't get away without doing that twice. Right. But like all, but all jokes aside, um, the, the director is clearly immensely talented. Oh yeah. 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 I, I'm very eager to see what he does next. I hope to Christ it's not a fucking Marvel movie. <laughs> yeah. I'm so, I'm so sick of these talented, uh, capable, like, promising directors kind of being swept up by that big machine and just yeah. made to churn out a bunch of processed horseshit. I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I watch the Marvel stuff. I like it well enough. You know, it's, it's fun, but it was fun. It was much more fun before it was everything that was in theaters. Mm-hmm. So again, I mean, hopefully if, if Herbula wants to do that, then shit, get your fucking money and then mm-hmm. you know, make some, make some fun, interesting things because it feels, it just feel like a, a real, I won't say a waste of talent, but a real, um, you're trading low on the dollar for that right. one. And, and speaking of, of the filmmaking of it and how, you know, they kind of, they, as you were saying, there's this great shorthand. Uh, apparently the initial cut of the film was about two hours and 20 minutes. And I would be really curious to see that cut. You know, I, I, I doubt I would like it more because as you say, I think the, the simplicity of it is kind of where it shines, but, uh, or not, not, not simplicity, but the efficiency of the storytelling. Mm-hmm. is where it shines. But at the same time, I just like the characters so much that I would, I would like des- to see more of them. I would describe it as elegant. Right? Yeah. 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 It's it just, it does what it needs to do and nothing more. No wasted motions. It tells you what you need to know, shows you what you need to see with just what you need. Right. And does it beautifully. 
Yeah. The, the only thing I could, like the downside I can see to the longer version is a little bit like what happened with Apocalypse Now Redux. Hmm. And like, you've seen Apocalypse Now, I assume. Yeah. Because the, the, the original. Right. <laughs> the, yeah. yeah. So the Redux it was is terrible. I, okay. I love Apocalypse Now. It's one of my favorite movies. I've seen it many, many times. Uh, but I was traveling once and the Redux had come out. And for our listeners or viewers, I guess, who don't know, the Redux introduces a couple uh, scenes that have been cut from the main version. Because Apocalypse Now is about two hour, two and a half hours, if I remember correctly. And the Redux version is about three hours. And it, it adds a couple scenes which sort of flesh out some of the themes. And it, just, it's just totally unnecessary. It, it, it Watching it, I was so bored, which had never happened watching Apocalypse Now. And that's when I realized, like, Apocalypse Now, it's, you know, sometimes movies are just like a perfectly machined knife. They balance just the way that you want them to. Mm-hmm. And to add anything else, even if you think you want it, it just screws up that balance and then it's not what you want it to be anymore or what it could be. And I feel like, you know, that's could be with Saloon, but unlike Apocalypse Now, which I felt like that didn't add anything to the characters, I would just love to see more of these characters. And frankly, if if uh, the same creative team made a prequel showing the adventures of of these three characters, I'd be all over that shit. Yeah. yeah. Or even, um, even you know, uh, maybe not. I mean, it, the, the, the way it was sort of described as like Awa, after Chaka's dragged into the into the river, she continues on with Rafa and Minwit, and the idea being that she's kind of taken over as the leader. Like this is a new version of the hyenas, is is I guess how it was meant to sort of be received, and and it's very similar also to the Wild Bunch in that because I was looking it up while we were chatting, and uh, William Holden plays the leader of the Wild Bunch, and by the end of the film, a lot of the main members of that group are dead. So there's a handful of them left over and this character played by Robert Ryan, who had been a sort of a traitor, he ends up kind of their de facto leader and they move on with whatever the next version of that lifestyle is. And so I sort of, again, maybe either unintentional homage or, or just one of those things where, you know, this is sort of a trope and it's hard to avoid, but uh, interesting coincidence, I guess. It would be interesting to see sort of either direction, either what comes next or sort of the, the, the adventures of, you know, the hyenas. So either yeah. way, um, you know, the, I, I think this director is up to the task, right? Absolutely. All right. So, uh, no, that is it for me. So I guess that's it for the talking on. What you think? That never gets less creepy. It never does. No, never, no. never. Does. I regret making it, but it's here now. <laughs> you, you're secretly glad you made that. I am. I really am. Yeah. Uh, so what I think. What do you think? So Joseph, all in all, um, just one sentence review, one sentence uh, summation of your thoughts on Saloon. A gem of a film that I never realized I needed to see. All right. Uh, yeah, I was going to say refreshing, beautiful, and you should see it as soon as possible. Because movies like this don't come along very often. And uh, there's something I missed in my baggage, and I just want to address it quickly. I was hesitant to watch this because it it was, again, cropping up a lot on like, oh, just on Shudder. But horror right now, or I shouldn't say horror because that's a very sweeping statement. There's actually a lot of great horror out at the moment. But there is a subset of horror happening right now, uh, and it does seem to be stuff popping up on Shudder, where it's kind of centered around this um, sort of... uh, uh, there's another film that popped up called Speak No Evil, I think it is. 
and I was listening to the review of it on Canal's Sinister Cinema, uh, which is a fun show, and you should check out if you if you like horror movies. It's kind of that Michael Haneke funny games esque. The horror comes from these like people who don't who they push social convention and they make things very awkward and awkward until violence breaks out. And that seems to be, you know, that is sort of a thing I'm seeing, you know, along with movies that I call um, the real Babadook is the friends we made along the way. So many movies now, they just have this, again, it's either about violating social convention or trauma as text. You know, Babadook was a kind of about grief and as subtext, like Barry, it was really just a scary ass horror movie, but also down in the basement, there's this, yeah, subtext about grief, but so many subsequent films, it's just been like, no, it's, it's just text. We're not even being subtle about it. Mm-hmm. And in the end, the monster always turns out to be someone's mom or some. It's it's just yeah, you know, it's like that. It doesn't matter. It was gonna kids movie. No one's seen it, but <laughs> yeah. And so I liked. I was re- I was hesitant to watch it, but I'm glad I did. And so that's my recommendation to you is uh, is check it out. And it's not even that violent, really. Yeah. It's not gory. It's not. Not that tense. It's just a, a well-made film. All right. So uh, we'll we'll give it a, give our audience a sec. If anyone has any last-minute questions or comments, well, uh, now's the time. But uh, other than that, I guess we'll be another month before we do this. I tell you, Joseph, when I'm doing the show, mm-hmm. I'm having so much fun. I'm like, let's do this every week. Mm-hmm. And then I'm making the trailers, and I think, I never want to do this again. <laughs> Listen, the, the, the preps, there's a little bit of prep work. That's the, that's, that's the part that, you know, there's a little more of a, a drudgery, but yeah, I mean, the live stream, hanging out with you, hanging out with the good folks in the chat, talking about some films, uh, especially, you know, great film like this. It, yeah, I absolutely uh, just enjoy this time thoroughly. Likewise. All right. So it looks like we're good. So um, where can everyone find you online, Joseph? So you can find me uh, on Twitter at ISO underscore ghosts or at uh, Jokemo13. Uh, I do a lot of sports stuff there, but uh, you can find uh, either one of those Twitter accounts. And obviously, you can find our content on the We're Together YouTube channel. Yes, uh, please like and subscribe. We would very much appreciate it. We're trying to grow the channel. And I'm the host of the Ghost Story Guys, or co-host of the Ghost Story Guys podcast with Paul Bestel. I also have a podcast, Largely the Truth, with Brendan Store, which I'm hoping to bring back soon. And you can find those everywhere. Find podcasts, live, and I'm on Twitter and Instagram as largely the truth. Until next time, we're weird. And you're weird. So why not be weird together? Thanks for joining us, folks.